You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference podcast. The 11th annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at Maynooth University on the 18th and 19th of August, 2023. The conference was generously supported by the MacMorris Project, the Irish Research Council, the Department of English at Maynooth University, the Arts and Humanities Institute at Maynooth University, and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the conference was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. You can access an archive of more than 250 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. In this episode, a recording of the second conference plenary, which is given by Keith Plymers from Illinois State University. Keith's paper was entitled Memories of Early Modern Deforestation and the Making of Modern Irish Environmentalism. Keith Blymers was introduced by Stephen O'Neill from Maynooth University. It's an absolute pleasure to um, be chairing the final plenary of Tudor Stewart Ireland Conference and to introduce our speaker, Keith Blymers. Um, I think people will, will know Keith's work uh, very well. People in the room will know his work. Keith is an environmental historian and assistant professor at Illinois State University. And his 2021 monograph, No Wood, No Kingdom, Political Ecology in the English Atlantic from UPenn Press, brings early modern forests and trees to life. It won the John Ben Snow Award for Best Book in Pre-Modern British Studies from the North American Conference on British Studies. And the book was quickly recognised as a significant contribution to early modern environmental histories, and I think also... Um, arboreal humanities. Trees emerge in Keats' research as agental actors within the drama of history, alongside those usual suspects that we might expect to find, including colonists, governors, and and even some early ecologists are in there as well. Um, And through a model of political ecology, Keats shows how the early modern world was a wooden one, and that colonial enterprises were economic as well as environmental And the deep interest in political ecology runs through Keats' publications that have attended to agrarian, social and maritime histories. He moves from land, as in his article on the cow trials in Mayo during the 1641 uprising in the journal Environmental History from 2020, to water with research into the quasi-legal maritime economy that emerged in southwest Ireland during the Munster Plantation. And that's in the volume of essays entitled Governing the Sea in the Early Modern Era uh, from the Huntington Library in 2015. And Keith is currently working on a book on water management and climate anxiety and then the development of Philadelphia over the long 18th century. So there's a, there's a great range here. This is, this is just like, you're too good to be true really, aren't you? Um, and in the fall of 2023, and now we have real professional envy, he will be a visiting research scholar at the Shelby Cullum Davis Centre in Princeton. So Keith's work has struck me as deeply ethical and chatting to him yesterday and had the pleasure of meeting Keith online before through a project we were doing called Literature in Irish Trees. Um, he's embedded in debates, his work is embedded in debate, debates about what it means to do history now um, in our time of ecological crisis. And I think we're about to get a sense of the richness of Keith's approach in his plenary talk, deep forays into Ireland's wooded histories await us. So I give you Keith Blimers.
thank you so much to Stephen uh, for that very kind and generous introduction and for the initial invitation to be involved in the Literature in Ireland's Trees Network, where the idea for this talk came from out of a discussion we were having about 19th century ideas about Ireland's woods. And I was wondering where the early modern was, and then I decided to try to think and find out. Uh, thank you also to Pat and Evan for the invitation and for all of the logistical work to get me here to make sure I didn't get lost and, and things like that. It is truly greatly appreciated. On January 24th, 2023, uh, deputies in the Dáil debated a bill introduced by Sinn Féin TD Matt Carthy on a joint venture between state-owned forestry company, semi-state-owned forestry company Quilcha and the investment company Gresham House, which had just formed an Irish branch uh, fairly recently. The discussion was wide-ranging in the debate, addressing issues of biodiversity loss, threatened species, and the ethics of foreign investment, rural development, the welfare of farmers, among several other things. At a few points, however, it turned to the history of Ireland's forests. Aintu T.D. Pater Toibin claimed the history of forestry in Ireland is wrapped up in many ways with the history of the Irish people. We were heavily deforested by the British as part of centuries of colonial asset stripping, and now, as a result, we're one of the least forested countries in Europe. This has obviously damaged Ireland immeasurably, and we are a poorer country as a result. It is quite ironic, therefore, that we are seeing 100 years after independence an Irish government unable to replace those forests, outsourcing the job to a British vulture fund. Yikes. Uh, Independent Galway West TD Catherine Connolly offered a similar, although historically more precise, account. (laughs) Noting that it was ironic that after colonization led to the deforestation of Ireland over 400 years ago, putting it squarely in the early modern period, after which we had very few trees left, it took almost 200 years to increase the proportion from 1% to 11%, and we are now relying on our former colonizers to reforest our country for profit and with the help of the Irish government and public money. These comments seemed to mean very little in the debate overall. No one else took it up. No one responded to them. Uh, And after some confusion, the vote was adjourned to the next day. Uh, The motion passed, but the Quilcha deal has gone through, despite uh, opposition to it. Uh, Although uh, deputies and Quilcha directors have promised never to do anything like it ever again. Uh, We'll see if their fingers (laughs) cross behind their back when they promised it. These recent claims about forest history are only the most recent examples of a larger pattern in which early modern deforestation serves as a focal point in broader stories about Ireland's environment. And just as an example here, uh, from the limerick author, entertainer, and spar bag aficionado blind boy, uh, Cromwell and British colonization in general is very much responsible for this, talking about deforestation. This narrative shows up in the animated film Wolfwalkers as well, and I'm very grateful to Coleman Dennehy for passing me that specific point to look out for. So this is a narrative that is widespread in popular culture and podcasts and a few other things. In my book, as Stephen mentioned a bit, I attempted to understand how and why claims about arboreal abundance and then wood scarcity and deforestation emerged in 16th and 17th century Ireland, and how those conflicting claims served distinct colonial political ecologies. 
In short, my argument was that both the vision of Ireland as a densely forested landscape and then the idea of a rapidly deforested Ireland were the products of fevered colonial imaginations that bore little resemblance to what was happening on the ground. This isn't to say that the English aren't cutting down trees. They are. Sometimes they're enacting preservation measures quite selfishly in the case of someone like Robert Boyle, first Earl of Cork. But the discourses that are coming from reformers, planters, and the state are at a level removed from the material world. They're building landscapes and destroying them in almost a kind of little chamber uh, unto themselves, unrelated to material reality in any sense. Today, I wanted to look going forward, though, and to think about the afterlives of discourses about early modern wood scarcity, trying to build on the longitudinal and historiographic approach that Nicholas Canny has adopted in his most recent book, Imagining Ireland's Past. I want to take a slightly different approach than Canny, though, looking not just at what historians say, but also looking at some other disciplines, uh, specifically by looking at the Journal of the Society of Irish Foresters to get a sense for how practitioners were using history in order to think about forest policy and their own vision for Ireland's environment. And in doing so, I hope that I'm going to show you that although the early modern period was often a crucial point in chronologies of Irish forest history, that there's never been a clean consensus on exactly when deforestation occurred or who exactly did it, despite statements such as this one. Nor has early modern history served exclusively nationalist narratives, despite frequent claims that early modern deforestation by the English is either a nationalist version or more aggressively from some foresters, a nationalist myth. It is much more ideologically diverse than they're willing to let on. All right, so here's what I'm going to do. We'll start off with a couple of 19th and 20th century historians that end up being the core texts that foresters are going to draw on and critique uh, throughout much of the 20th and even the 21st centuries. The narratives they're drawing on are often quite stale. Um, then we're going to look at what some of the foresters say, as well as non-foresters writing to an audience of foresters in Irish forestry. And finally, I want to end by thinking about two environmentalists, one American, one Irish, who are trying to reimagine what Irish forests and woodlands should look like today and think about what we as a community of early modernists can contribute to these debates. Complaints about plantations and deforestation had appeared as early as the mid-17th century in Gerard Boat's 1652 Ireland's Natural History, uh, in which he will blame the English, in fact. Uh, but the historical memory and historiography of deforestation begins to coalesce, at least in the minds of lots of other people, uh, in the 19th century. In some early works, particularly from the Young Ireland movement, however, there's multiple medieval and early modern chronologies for deforestation. Young Irelander John Mitchell's The Life and Times of A. O'Neill, 1845, linked early modern Gaelic Irish identity to a wooded landscape. In his preface, Mitchell wrote that he was attempting to view events from, quote, Irish forests rather than Dublin Castle. Throughout his history, O'Neill and other Irish leaders drew military advantage, he claimed, from their knowledge of woods and bogs, using them as sources of refuge after defeats and sites from which to wage, quote, guerrilla warfare. 
English military leaders, particularly Mountjoy, worked to, quote, cut away and clear the woods to establish control of an area. So we get an Elizabethan story there. Writing after the famine in his 1869 History of Ireland, however, Mitchell began to explicitly define deforestation as a problem rather than just something he sort of alludes to broadly, but identified it as a late 17th and early 18th century consequence of the post-glorious revolution political settlement. According to Mitchell, settlers burdened by, quote, precarious tenure, decided to remorselessly, his words, fell their woods for quick cash, often selling trees for a mere trifle. The result, as he put it, was wanton waste that was lamentably observed in the nakedness of this once well-wooded island, where in Dean Swift's time it would have been impossible, as he tells us, to find timber either for shipbuilding or for the houses of the people. Thomas McNevin's Confiscation of Ulster from 1846 offered a far more thorough comment on deforestation, identifying it as one of the crimes committed by the English state and planters in Ireland as part of a longer colonial process stretching from the 12th century to his own moment. Ireland, he said, had been called the Woody Island prior to the Norman Conquest, but, quote, Norman pirates and robbers quickly began to demolish the woods for the purpose of increasing the amount of valuable land. The pattern continued throughout the 17th century, and, quote, the forests and the independence of the people went together. The quantity of timber had diminished and has continued to decrease to, decrease to such a degree that Ireland would probably now be characterized by the absence of woods, writing in the middle of the 19th century. This multi-century chronology was crucial for McNevin's juxtaposition between Ireland's natural abundance and the scale of colonial theft, and for the contemporary political point he hoped to achieve through a discussion of deforestation. Multiple attempts at deforestation had failed from the 12th through the 17th century because the scale of Ireland's woods was so great. Ultimately, quote, the exigencies of building resulting from the conditions of the plantation, soon, however, destroyed even quicker than war or axe the remaining wood. Note that he and Mitchell, post-famine, are going to have different explanations. For Mitchell, it's and different time periods in each case. We see a sort of sprawling early modern chronology beginning to develop. Blaming deforestation on colonial peace rather than colonial war allowed McNevin to use the 17th century as an analogy for the 19th, when, as he put it, quote, a great want of wood is experienced in Ireland due to the negligence of absentee landlords. Concerns about Irish forests were not, however, solely the province of young Irelanders or nationalists. As part of his effort to develop a liberal unionist vision for Irish history that acknowledged English missteps and Irish sufferings, uh, drawing on the work of young Irelanders at times, William E. H. Leckie's 1878 A History of Ireland in the 18th Century provided an account of Irish deforestation that centered English rule in colonial land seizures. Leckie's account, like McNevin's, created the appearance of a single colonial moment with inflection points from the 13th to the 18th centuries. The Irish landscape was densely forested prior to the 12th century Norman conquest, he claimed, drawing on Gerald of Wales before citing Spencer, the great villain of this conference. <laughs> Despite the seeming continuity of arboreal abundance, the English had established a pattern of destruction in their, quote, long wars to conquer Ireland. But the 16th century served as a key moment of acceleration. The policy of felling woods is a military measure, he claimed, 
was afterwards pursued by the English on a gigantic scale during the wars under Elizabeth and in the long peace that followed. For Leckie, the 17th century was the culmination of 16th century deforestation, driven by the greed and short-sightedness of individual planters. This chronology inadvertently introduced further questions about exactly when destruction was complete. For example, Leckie juxtaposed advertisements for the Ulster plantation from the first decade of the 17th century that noted the province's arboreal abundance, notably ones coming after the Elizabethan and early Jacobean wars that he had cited as an initial round of deforestation, against a report to the Irish House of Commons for the end, from the end of the century lamenting near-total destruction of woods in the region. Just before this, however, he had identified the period immediately following the Glorious Revolution with mass deforestation above all else. Indeed, he began this entire section with one of the most frequently used historical quotations in late 19th and early 20th century newspaper stories on Ireland's forests. Quote, A serious and enduring change passed over the material aspect of the country in the 40 years that followed the revolution from the rapid destruction of its finest woods. And this gets reprinted not as much as you would think, but it does show up in some nationalist newspapers and in the most consistent article on deforestation that shows up in Irish newspapers in the 19th and 20th century, one that's reprinted over the course of 30 years, this quotation is the one that goes in. So Leckie becomes, in an odd way, a kind of nationalist historical hero. Um, I guess you can't control how people are going to read you, can you? In the end, Leckie had established three distinct chronologies for Irish deforestation, one medieval process culminating in an intensive and near-total felling in the 16th century, one late 16th to mid-17th century process bound up with the plantations and Cromwellian conquest and land seizures, and one running from the 1680s to the 1730s. Uh, the, more, <laughs> the far less liberal unionist, uh, Caesar Lytton Faulkner, sought to offer a narrower chronology for deforestation than Leckie. Moreover, his approach to unionist history made him far less sympathetic to the arguments of the young Irelanders that deforestation represented a tragedy. In a 1903 essay, Faulkner took on the history of Irish deforestation, arguing that after 20 years of schemes to reforest Ireland in the late 19th century, a sober historical perspective was necessary to consider when and why forests had been felled. Doing so, he hoped, would end calls for vast new planting projects, which he could barely contain how ridiculous he thought they were. Like others, Faulkner began with Gerald of Wales's claim that Ireland was densely forested, noting that even Gerald's harshest critics had not challenged his claim about the wooded landscape. Accounts of dense forests from Sir John Davies and John Derrick confirmed to Faulkner both that Gerald's account had been completely accurate and that it persisted into the 16th century. Importantly for Faulkner, this meant that efforts to link the medieval English presence in Ireland to deforestation were incorrect, despite statutes and proclamations against dense woods. 13th century, quote, decadence of English power prevented the taking of any effective steps under this statute. Indeed, he hinted that purported failures of English authority might have even increased wooded cover between Gerald's account and the 16th century. For Faulkner, the 16th and 17th centuries were crucial in beginning to change forest cover, and change happened rapidly. The adoption of a resolute policy in Ireland by the Tudor sovereigns, he claimed, saw quick transformations, evidenced by Fines Morrison's account of treeless plains in the early 17th century and Gerard Boat's writing on deforested lands in the 1650s. 
Alongside military policy ironworks, particularly those of Richard Boyle and William Petty, cleared area, uh, those works cleared areas that war had left untouched. Although Faulkner saw these areas, um, early modern actions as, quote, reckless and, quote, rapid, he located the near-complete eradication of the purportedly primeval woods in the 19th century, not in this early modern period. Moreover, he hesitated to condemn it, saying that, quote, the natural consequence of that social transformation which necessarily followed the effective assertion of the authority of the crown led to it. And he went on to argue that early preservation laws from Strafford, among others, set a foundation for English good governance and reforestation going forward. So here's a unionist historian arguing that there is early modern deforestation, but that it's a good thing. Rather than a single consistent story that we might associate with 19th century romantic nationalism of the young Irelanders then, uh, 19th century historians, nationalists, and unionists, various varieties of unionists even, offer multiple chronologies for Irish deforestation and multiple ideological accounts. Are they good, bad, lamentable, but perhaps necessary? There's a kind of incoherence that shows up in the historiography here, which takes us to Forrester's. Uh, specifically to the Society of Irish Foresters, and looking at about 80 years uh, of their journal, uh, the past 80 years of their journal, seeing how they're trying to process this. From the modern beginnings of the discipline, Ireland's foresters took an interest in history as part of their job. Shortly after his take, taking his position as professor of forestry at the Royal College of Science Dublin, later to become UCD, noted botanist and forester Augustine Henry gave a sweeping lecture on Ireland's woods and forests, beginning with a discussion of a forest station after the last major glaciation, approximately 12,000 years ago, using stumps preserved in bogs for evidence. In turning to historical accounts, he warned, quote, the extent of aboriginal forest in Ireland has been exaggerated, with clearances beginning and significantly altering the landscape in the Neolithic period. History, however, mattered deeply to, her, to Henry, who attempted briefly to provide historical sketches outlining the distinct landscape histories of Ireland. English sources, Arthur Chichester's writing as Lord Deputy, estate records, the Cromwellian books of survey and distribution, he argued, provided a sense of both forest cover and destruction, but these should always be coupled with the analysis of Irish place names. So he's trying to balance his sources there. Ultimately, his vision of this history was profoundly particularist and antiquarian. Quote, The mapping out of old woods with a study of their characteristic vegetation, at the same time linking up their history with ancient names of places in the old forest, would be excellent work. This should be completed, however, quote, before the progress of civilization removes all traces of these interesting relics. Rather than crucial cultural heritage or a resource, Native woods were curiosities and doomed ones at that. He's not celebrating their departure, but much like George Catlin paintings of Native Americans, he's viewing them as something that simply must fall before the onward rush of civilization. After significant exploitation of Irish woods during the First World War, a topic that newspapers are obsessed with, for the record, uh, and the beginnings of Irish state forestry following the struggle for independence and the creation of the Irish Free State, foresters began to more explicitly connect forest history to forest policy. In the first issue of the Journal of the Society of Irish Foresters, uh, cover shown here, 
Arthur C. Forbes, a Scottish forester who came prior to independence and then stayed on afterwards, uh, a towering figure in 20th century Irish forestry who became the director of forestry for the Irish Free State and delivered the forestry degree program at UCD from 1931 to 1935, lamented that the early modern period had, quote, been very thoroughly dealt with by modern historians. But unfortunately, they have nearly all repeated a number of misstatements on the supposed abundance of woods and forests in Ireland about that time. The problem, he wrote, was sourcing. Historians were too willing to believe various descriptions of Ireland written by travelers between 1598 and 1650, which mix up bogs and woods in a manner which renders it practically impossible to get any clear idea of the actual state of affairs. Early modern English authors were confused, he argued, finds Morrison even admitted as much. And thus, the best path to adopt was, quote, to steer as carefully as possible between various divergent views on the former wooded state of the country and to assume that a great deal of native woodland of a rough and scrubby character existed down to the 16th century and that much of this was cleared or became incorporated with holdings before the year 1700 or so. So a radically different sense of what Irish forests look like. The things that are being debated by the English are remnants for Forbes. <clears throat> For Forbes, survival of early modern woodlands told a far more interesting story than destruction of things that came earlier. Those surviving stands that existed in the mid-20th century were, quote, uniform in age, size, and density due to the fact that most of them were clear-cut and were regenerated by stool shoots, finally reduced to a single stem. He's describing the process of coppicing there, whereby for certain hardwood species, if you cut a tree it will regenerate with a number of branches coming up and it can form a sustainable supply of wood for things like charcoal production. So he's looking at coppices in the mid-20th century and saying those are the great legacy of early modern forests that we should all feel very good about. The physical character of surviving early modern trees signaled to him, quote, their exploitation seems to have been methodically carried out. And the idea that they were deliberately destroyed for political or military reasons has been erroneously entertained. Rather than a story of careless destruction, Forbes argued that surviving woodland showed the limits of a forestry regime grounded solely in the exploitation of existing trees. And that's going to be really crucial for what comes next. The chronology of Irish forestry cover, he argued, had been badly compressed. As he put it, the interval of time which elapsed between the two extremes, a fully forested Ireland and one with the least forest cover in Europe, must be calculated in thousands of years, and not in three or four hundred, as is often done. Early modern deforestation involved the clearance of residue from earlier agricultural clearances or woodlands left unable to regenerate after the depredations of Norman-introduced rabbits, one of the key villains in his story about Irish woods, <laughs> Uh, the felling that did occur was neither as haphazard or militarily motivated as had been hypothesized. This long chronology was crucial to his path forward for the Irish Free State, planting new trees, specifically commercially viable conifers, and striking a balance between agriculture and the woods. We'll stick with him for a little bit. This was neither the first nor the only time that Forbes had made this argument. In a 1933 essay, he had lamented, in the majority of histories dealing with Irish economics during the past two or three hundred years, the statement is either made or implied that the greater number of the native forests of this country was destroyed during the 16th and 17th centuries. 
Most absurd, he suggested, was the belief that, quote, the native Irish, whoever these may have been, had a keen sense of forest preservation, while the various intruders were entirely devoid of this quality. This is the chief forester of the Irish Free State, I just want to note. Um, this belief, he claimed, was widespread and emerged from, quote, the parrot-like repetition from period to period and from author to author of some casual reference to a subject which is merely dealt with in an incidental manner by a stray traveler or journalist with a very limited knowledge of the country. Figures like Gerald Wales, Fines Morrison, or Gerard Boat, all of whom will cite. Forbes attempted to undertake what he saw as a more reliable, if limited, historical approach focused on close reading of various non-literary sources. So he's making an argument to historians here. Doing so, he argued, showed that the early modern period saw so many scarcity complaints because Irish woods became economically significant as trade goods. In reality, he claimed, quote, the great bulk of the forest had disappeared centuries before. The Elizabethan trade simply cleared up the remnants. Even there, note, his chronology is shifting around a bit. To argue for this earlier deforestation, Forbes went to the laws, annals, and other medieval Irish texts to examine their discussion of tree species and landscapes. While there were, as, as proponents of a densely forested ancient Ireland noted, many references to trees in these sources, Forbes argued that there were also many references to fields and bogs. Most, most importantly, there were abundant references to livestock grazing, which, he noted, had a significant impact on forest morphology, composition, and regeneration. Early efforts to date preserve pines and pollen found in bogs, and he is very early for the science on that. Uh, he wrote, suggested that some species loss predated even these earliest written Irish texts. The forest conjured up by many patriotic and imaginative persons, he quipped, consisting of thousand-year oaks or yews and mammoth ashes with pine-covered mountains thick as leaves in Vallombrosa, may have existed at one time, but not in that dealt with by the historian. In Irish forestry's second is issue, uh, T. McAvoy, citing Forbes' 1933 piece, endorsed many of its findings. Citing analysis of bog pollen, which had gotten a little bit better and which he was more involved in, McAvoy argued that most of our grassland must now be regarded not as a climatic, but as a biotic climax, i.e. a more or less stable plant community whose continued existence is dependent on the activity of man and his domesticated herbivores. Ireland had long seen a mix of bog, field, and forest, he argued, but that mixture was the result of the actions of humans and their grazing animals, not the end point of climatic succession that would make fields natural in Ireland. McAvoy went to history to justify this claim. He sought to craft the limited, careful historical narrative stretching from, quote, the beginning of the Christian era to the 18th century. Although opening with the vast extent of woodland in early Christian Ireland, he quickly suggested that much deforestation had occurred prior to the Norman invasion as part of a steady process up to the 17th century. What had defined the 16th to 18th centuries was, quote, the rapid destruction of the forest that remained on hilly, broken, and infertile ground, essentially clearing things that were not viable for pasture or tillage. This was an effort to explain meaningful decline in specific woodlands during the early modern period, but to situate it within a much longer timeline of deforestation. Despite these early critiques, some authors in Irish forestry nonetheless sought to retain the importance of the early modern period in broader histories of Ireland's forests. 
1944, M.L. Anderson wrote that the 17th and 18th centuries were, quote, extremely important because a very considerable proportion of the mature trees felled in recent years for the emergency uh, were either planted towards the end of that period, 17th and 18th centuries, or as a result of legislation passed during that period, and certainly on the lines of forestry or planting experience gained in that period. Drawing on Faulkner and Forbes, Anderson avoided questions of deforestation altogether, instead reframing the early modern period as a bright origin point of conservation and planting. By excerpting excerpting and analyzing statutes, records of tree planting and tree registration, and some other sources, Anderson suggested that rather than a period of immense destruction, Anglophone sources showed that the 17th and 18th century provided, quote, a very considerable proportion, therefore, of the old and mature trees which have been cut during the present emergency. It also, he argued, established the, the defining tension facing Irish forestry. Hunger for agricultural land had led to existing woods being cleared and converted, and the threat posed by other uses remained high. For Anderson, the lesson of the early modern period was that foresters should, quote, direct every effort to maintaining all areas now set aside and being utilized for forestry in the highest state of production possible, read lots and lots of conifers, not only to justify their existence economically, but to discourage any future attempts at disafforestation in favor of some other land-using industry, read farming. Early modern forest history, he concluded, provided a clear justification for present practices that tended towards rapid growth, high-yield forestry. Early modern history, in this case, ends in a same-age crop of Sitka spruce. Arthur Forbes further developed this line of argument, back to him again, in a 1947 essay for Irish forestry. He opened with a quick potted history of Ireland's forest that represented many of the points about chronology and deforestation from his previous work. But Forbes argued stories of destruction missed the most important development in Irish forestry in the 17th and 18th centuries, deliberate planting, most frequently on large estates. These efforts both supplied trees that enabled Ireland to survive an import crisis during the First World War and provided the model of state forestry that should follow. So essentially, free state forestry was meant to imitate the planters. An irony, certainly. Particularly in the 40s, right? This is in the time of De Valera's vision of sustainability, of ideas about national production. I mean, this is in the case where you have development and there's forestry schemes around the same period. But places like Ardnacrusha that are imagining the creation of a modern Irish infrastructure as something that is distinctively Irish... And here's someone saying the way you do that is by being like Boyle, another planter. It, it's odd. The long absence of native or wild woods, he claimed, and the dramatically diminished state of those that were subject to felling in the early modern period, the success, those early modern successes of plantation forestry provided a powerful lesson to him. One that the recent experience of the wood crisis, as he put it, um, so crisis for him in the middle of the 20th century, during the emergency confirmed. Practical, production-oriented scientific forestry needed to triumph over sentimentality or nostalgia. Newly planted wood should be same-age plantations. Uneven-age woods, he said, resulting from interplanting, underplanting, or natural regeneration, may look better from an aesthetic point of view. 
But the difficulty with rabbits and hares, lack of intensive sunlight, and other drawbacks not always anticipated, such as the extraction of mature timber without damage to the younger trees, discounts a good deal of the theoretical value of these systems. Production needed to trump aesthetics. It also needed to supersede nostalgia for historic woodlands. The natural oak woods he said, still left and capable of cultural treatment, should be restored to a coppiced condition of a fairly long rotation, and the old English system of retaining standards of the most promising trees at each felling resorted to. So in essence, what should be done to old, mature, hardwood woods is exactly the policy of Tudor Stort planters, Raleigh, Boyle, and their ilk. This was not, Forbes noted, a particularly new perspective. Citing Samuel Hayes' reflection on early modern coppice with standards oak wood management in his 1794 practical treatise on planting, it simply needed to be thoroughly implemented, and the free state should do it. Concerns with self-sufficiency driven by trade disruption during, the World, War, during World War I and the emergency, the Anglo-Irish trade war of the 1930s, as well as subsequent energy and resource fears. Again, Ardner Krusha is a pretty crucial con- uh, piece of context for a lot of this, uh, drove a consensus in Irish forestry towards increasing production. As Margaret Duff Garvey's excellent TC, uh, Trinity PhD describes, I would add, however, Um, that this new consensus drew on a new interpretation of early modern forest history, one that de-emphasized destruction and celebrated colonial woodland husbandry while situating woodland loss into a much longer millennial scale rather than century scale time frame. In doing so, foresters hoped that that free state forestry authorities could both explain the origins of sources of wood that had taken on crucial importance during decades of scarcity and war, and to find a usable past to buttress production-oriented Sitka spruce forestry in the present and in the future. Both the success of this endeavor and increasing doubts about the importance of history for forestry practice led to a sharp decline in publications after this. So there's a real wave of foresters thinking about history early on in this journal's history, and then it falls off a cliff, in part because they win. Uh, The free state's forest policies lead to mass plantations of conifers, particularly things like Sitka spruce. From the 1950s to the 1970s, there are only two articles on early modern forests or forestry, all of which came from the eminent Irish forest historian Eileen McCracken. Beginning in the 1940s, McCracken had worked to carefully reconstruct the extent and pattern of Ireland's woods and forests, with a particular focus on the early modern period. Her analysis challenged the 19th century accounts of the young Irelanders and of Leckie, while partially rejecting the forest policy conclusions of Forbes and his comrades. McCracken's work represents a crucial effort to reassert the significance of forest history to foresters. In the conclusion of her 1971 book, The Irish Woods Since Tudor Times, McCracken set early modern deforestation into a longer narrative, removing it as the central event in Ireland's forest history while still focusing on it. Private tree plantations, mostly those undertaken by large landowners, had produced 375,000 acres of woods by 1841, she claimed, a number that remained stable through the 19th century. So again, very different narrative of what's happening in the 19th century there. It was the mass deforestation of World War I that saw a nearly two-thirds decline to 130,000 acres. 
McCracken drew on this longer history to explain the differences in the appearance of 20th century Irish forests. Most of the old estate woods, she wrote, are of deciduous trees. These old woods are often untended, wild, uneconomic to, come, to some, but not all professional foresters. However, some people like them. They look, quote, natural. In contrast, the conifers that dominated state forests were, and this is a beautiful image, quote, forced like battery hens, and their timber is comparable in quality to the eggs and flesh derived from those hens, a poor parody. McCracken did not consider restoration of native forests a viable possibility. The future landscape of Ireland lies in the hands of forest planners, she noted. The question then was whether diverse woodlands characteristic of 18th and 19th century estate forestry would be preserved, quote, for we shall not see their like again, and, or whether everything would be converted into fast-growing conifers. McCracken's challenge to the conifer consensus prompted a dismissive line in Irish Forestry's review of the book. McCracken, the reviewer lamented, had introduced a, quote, controversial note by comparing plantation forestry to industrial poultry production and calling for increased hardwood planting, which he dismissively claimed, quote, would hardly remedy the situation. Ultimately, however, the reviewer noted, historians pose little threat to foresters. As he put it, <laughs> foresters have long begun their talks in the public with a mention of our great forests of the past. We're reduced to suppliers of cute anecdotes to begin a discussion rather than serious interlocutors, at least in his conception. Disciplinary tension is going to be a running theme moving forward from the 1970s in Irish forestry. Uh, at the next moment when the chronology of Irish deforestation again became a significant topic in the 1990s and early 2000s in response to some new developments in paleobotany. Um, yeah, here's the one on dismissive line on it. Um, in response to some new developments in response of paleobotany and archaeology, uh, led by the late, very excellent uh, paleobotanist uh, Valerie Hall from Queens. Uh, this new work reinforced the longer chronology of deforestation that Forbes had first proposed in the 1930s while offering some crucial revisions to it. The published version of paleoecologist Valerie Hall's 1995 Augustine Henry Memorial Lecture uh, on Irish Fars best captures the tone and pattern of this new approach. Hall provided a detailed chronology for Irish woods dating back to the beginning of the Holocene, about 12,500 years before our present. She turned to the early modern period after noting that pollen studies in bog archaeology showed significant local and regional variation, including some areas where woods survived earlier deforestation. Citing 17th century writing on dense woods of Killarney in the Lower Band Valley, Hall claimed, quote, these woods are cherished in folk memory as the last of the great Irish woodlands which never heard the sound of the axe. These are the woods said to have been decimated for shipbuilding timbers for the Elizabethan and Jacobean Navy. She doesn't say exactly where she got this. And note, it's different than the Young Irelanders. It's different than Leckie. It's different than others. She's citing a folk memory from somewhere, but doesn't provide a citation. The folk memory and the unsighted early modern texts that purportedly show this didn't align with pollen studies, she claimed, that pointed to deforestation in the 9th century in the Lower Band Valley. There's nothing in the pollen evidence, she said. 
uh, for the Lower Ban Valley region to suggest either widespread oak woodland in the 16th or 17th centuries or its wholesale removal between 1600 and 1650. This area was gradually cleared of trees over the last 1,000 years, first by the gale and then by the planter, something which Augustine Henry would have deplored. New scientific evidence, Hall and other paleoecologists and archaeologists argued in the pages of Irish forestry, had thrown doubt onto the reliability of the written record altogether, as well as the virtue of historical memory. So unlike the earlier generation that's going to fight about how to interpret these sources, by the 1990s and 2000s, the argument from paleoecologists, archaeologists, and others is going to be that we should just toss these sources altogether. They're a source of myth, but they really have very little to contribute. I don't think we need to be that pessimistic, though, and indeed, neither did the pages of Irish forestry. In 1999, historian Fergus Kelly's Augustine Henry lecture offered a new humanistic research that attempted to deal with, these, with this new paleoecological research and the longer chronology of deforestation. In it, he argued that an exhaustive analysis of references to trees in early Irish law texts, poetry, and proverbs dating from the 8th to the 12th centuries show uh, point to a landscape that lacked significant tree cover. While, quote, it takes only a generation's neglect to turn farmland into woodland, and it is likely that after the great plagues amongst people and livestock in the mid-7th century, there would have been considerable expansion of tree cover, he noted that 9th century texts saw woods as unusual, and that, quote, the documentary evidence of the early Irish period indicates that large woods were rare and confined to poor land. Despite the presence of reverence for trees and detailed regulation of woodlands in early Irish legal texts, Kelly found that other written sources pointed to a landscape in which significant deforestation had already occurred from a post-glacial high point. This marked a point in which there was a consensus across fields in which historians, humanistic scholars could assert our ability to comment on these matters. Really wonderful piece for that reason. Despite this, subsequent publications in Irish forestry presented a version uh, of arboreal abundance and early modern deforestation. So within the same journal, you see the chronology start to shift around a bit. In 2007, in the Forest Perspective section, Irish Forestry's editor, the forester Eugene Hendrick, who's ubiquitous in Irish forestry institutions, uh, serving as director of Cawford beginning in 2000, uh, published and introdu introduced an adaptation uh, excerpted from the geographer Mervyn Busteed's Castle Caldwell, in which Busteed offered a narrative of forest trees that closely resembled Leckie. Ireland, he claimed, was renowned for its dense woods up to the mid-16th century before becoming one of the least forested countries in Europe by the middle of the 18th century. This transformation, Busteed asserted, was due to warfare and colonization. The English undertook clearances to eliminate woodland strongholds. More extensive efforts at estate forestry, forestry, the specifics of which were the topic of the excerpt, only followed after this destruction. In 2022, the forester, editor, and popular author Donald Magner authored a piece for the Trees, Woods, and Literature section of Irish, Irish Forestry, which had begun in 1969 as a section introducing short excerpts of prose and poetry related to Ireland's woods and forests on the poetry, on the poetry of Egan O'Reilly. 
Magner's article, despite its short length, offered detailed analysis of Arahali's poetry that set it into the climatic context of the Little Ice Age and the ecological context of significantly declining forest cover. Arahali Magner wrote, portrayed a landscape and a forest ecosystem without hope of recovery at a time when woodland cover in Ireland had fallen to 2.5% of the land area by the middle of the 17th century. The stark reality of early modern deforestation, however, rather than an earlier one, was essential for Magner's analysis of the poem. Orahili, he writes, actually did see the forest in decline, and most importantly depicted this destruction as both a physical reality and a metaphor for Ireland's overall degeneration. The appearance of these two essays, edited and authored by foresters, point to the stickiness of a story of 16th and 17th century deforestation, even in the journal that had gotten its start arguing against such a thing existing at all. To move towards a conclusion... I'd like to think about two environmentalists, uh, one American and one Irish. Uh, and besides a kind of provincialism on my own part, I hope you'll forgive me for beginning with the American. It'll become important a little bit later on. In 1997, the essayist and environmentalist Rebecca Solnit wrote about her search for Ireland's last primeval forest uh, in the magazine of the Sierra Club, one of the largest and oldest environmental organizations in the United States. Two-thirds of Ireland, she wrote, was covered in dense forests before the first humans arrived approximately 8,000 years ago, and it remained in roughly this state up to the early modern period because of strict and just forest protection regulations and reverence for wooded lands exemplified in early Irish language literature. 16th and 17th century colonization brought about a rapid transformation that by 1800 had reduced Ireland's forest cover to a mere 2% of land area, and by the early 20th century meant that, quote, almost no woods were left. Solnit offered a brief note of caution, writing that, quote, the nationalist position, still taught in Irish schools, can't quite figure out where she got that, is that Ireland was deforested to strip rebels and outlaws of their cover. But her hesitation was about causation, not consequence. Immediately afterwards, she quoted Nicholas Canny to suggest that economic motivations, quote, analogous to contemporary logging, rather than military repression drove the destruction. For her as a Sierra Club member, it was loggers uh, threatening national parks rather than soldiers that were the enemy to be combated. Solnit went on a hunt for pre-colonial landscape in Killarney, uh, but it ended in a revealing failure. Her damp hike through Tomy's woods, quote, didn't meet my expectations for the kind of majesty that, might, that must have inspired all that pagan and early Christian enthusiasm for trees. That was because, she claimed, her local guide, Pauri O'Donohue informed her that the sessile oaks she saw were second growth, early modern legacies. Uh, with the real ancient woodlands, which, to be noted, ancient woodland in Ireland is defined as anything before 1660. Um, so you hear it, and it sounds very old, but it comes from the British forester Oliver Rackham's definition, and he's using the books of survey and distribution to draw that boundary line for what's ancient. So we're not talking thousand-year-old oaks or some thousand-year-old trees. It's 1660 is the line. Um, she's... Uh, upset because her informant informed her that real ancient woodlands were hidden in more isolated areas of the park. 
He likewise dashed her hopes to locate a pre-colonial spiritual, aesthetic, and poetic attachment to trees. Quote, There really isn't an Irish feeling for trees. There was once, but it went with the trees hundreds of years ago. <laughs> Solnit seemed to disagree. One of, yet another example of an American telling Irish people what to think about yourselves. Um, Solnit said, quote, A great many of the Irish people I spoke to had a profoundly personal sense of the land, drawn both from deep roots in local places and traditions, and from new ideas circulating internationally about imagining and protecting the natural world. Kind of nice, if perhaps a bit dismissive towards her local informant. Although she had failed to find any ancient trees, Solnit claimed she had found a distinct Irish environmentalism, one that stood in implied contrast to production-oriented forestry. It's notable that a number of others sort of drawing on this will disagree. They'll say there's no such thing as an Irish environmentalism. It was destroyed and will call for a cultural revival to bring one back. In contrast, and this is where I'll end with a book that has been buzzing. Uh, I was up at Kyle Moore for a Heritage Week event Uh, with a master's student at Galway who's doing an inventory of the trees there. And every question from the crowd was strongly implying this book. They consistently asked this poor woman attempting to do a really wonderful job. What about Irish rainforests? What about Irish? You're right, she's doing wonderful work. Every question is drawing on this. The artist and environmentalist Owen Dalton's 2022 book, An Irish Atlantic Rainforest, has provided a different account of Ireland's forest than Solnit or many others, but it nonetheless kept looking to the early modern period as a crucial moment that needed to be overcome, in this case not to restore or rediscover, but to rewild a term that was contentious in yesterday's Irish times, for example, uh, to rewild Irish landscapes and to begin to adequately respond to our current climate crisis. Dalton offered an investigation of colonial deforestation, deforestation, broadly conceived from the Norman Conquest through the 18th century, that identified the period running from 1650 to 1750 as one of forest destruction that was, quote, extremely fast and near total in Barra, where his own rewilding scheme is located. Although he cited canonical textual accounts going back to Gerald of Wales and Edmund Spencer, again, that villain can't stop recurring, his approach to sourcing was diverse, delving into the printed papers of Richard Boyle, Earl of Cork, 16th century maps around the beginning of the Munster Plantation, and the records of the Down Survey, and seeking to synthesize textual and archaeological evidence wherever possible. It is a decent approach to thinking about early modern woods in his region. This led to a locally specific chronology, but unlike Augustine Henry's locally specific chronology, what survived was to be most cherished rather than a relic to be documented before it disappeared. He placed much of the blame for deforestation in Barra on William Petty, although he offered up Boyle, uh, Boyle's most exploitative pronouncements, to characterize a colonial attitude towards woods that he views as international. Boyle is the stand-in for all colonial destruction in Dalton's account. He also claimed that, quote, there is much truth to the nationalist version of events with the new colonial order ruthlessly and very rapidly wiping out almost all the forests that had managed to cling on up to the 17th century. Not because early modern colonization represented the largest or most significant point of forest loss, but rather because the losses that did occur were the result of a, quote, supremacist view that justified total dominance of people over other than human nature. So now English, the plantations and colonizations, again, become stand-ins 
for a broader kind of anthro supremacist vision of the natural world. He's not the only one to argue this. Uh, others will in sort of other contexts, although they tend to look to Caribbean plantations rather than Irish ones to make that point. Despite his claim that he saw little chance to resolve debates over early modern deforestation and his desire to reorient Irish thinking about native and wild landscapes onto a multi-millennial scale, in one case arguing that you should think about a native species in Ireland actually predating glaciation to draw in some things that are found in Northwest Europe but are not uh, native even to Ireland of about 12,000 years ago, uh, he still felt like the early modern period needed to be included. There's a way in which it's stuck for a lot of people. Early modern Irish forest history has mattered beyond our fields to foresters and environmentalists in ways that shape 20th century Ireland's landscapes and forest policy across multiple states uh, and continues to shape visions for the 21st century. This offers all of us, I think, immense opportunities. Despite moments of tension and some significant dismissiveness towards us, Ireland's professional foresters have been remarkably open to contributions from historians and scholars of literature appearing in their flagship journal, um, which is pretty nice. Uh, And it's more important than ever that we continue to engage when these opportunities present. After all, these are the people who are designing what reforestation schemes are going to look like. It's more important that we do so when we think about uh, the histories of early modern deforestation, how they continue to shape that field, even as the debates have moved towards things like rewilding. After all, being able to talk about early modern landscapes, about Irish language ideas about the natural world in a sophisticated way is really crucial since ideas about what is wild, what is natural, and what is native, a term that is encompassing both people and plants, are becoming all the more common. Having a rich and sophisticated discussion of that, being able to think about Irish concepts, as Phil showed in his talk very early on, uh, the sheer diversity of them is absolutely crucial to not ending up with a romanticized version of the Gaelic past. There's also a need for us to question where, how, and ultimately if stories of early modern forests show up in everything from school curricula to historical markers and heritage tourism to films, songs, television. In essence, I hope that we will all continue to look beyond the historiography of our fields to popular memory because it's out there and we have a chance to shape it, but only if we embrace it. Finally, as we think about our own period We must think about how to find points of consilience or productive tensions with evidence from archaeology, paleobotany, and climatology. Dealing with a thousand-year, multi-thousand-year-long timescale of Irish environmental change is really challenging. But if we don't want our sources to be abandoned or cast aside by scientists, I think it's all the more important that we find a way to communicate with them, to take their evidence seriously, and to argue that they take our evidence seriously as well. Memories of early modern deforestation will continue to play a role in Ireland's forest and climate policies, and we have something important to say on that matter. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. 
For more information on the conference, go to tudorstuartireland.com. You can access the archive of Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference podcasts on History Hub's website, historyhub.ie, as well as on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Spotify.